Hey folks, welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series on the book of Leviticus. This time, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James Jordan are going to discuss the Ascension Offering. This is a great conversation that covers everything from the name of the offering itself to what is a blemished animal to corollaries between our worship in the new covenant and the ascension offering. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by listening in on this conversation. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James Jordan, who's joining us again for our podcast, and also with Alastair Roberts, who's joining us from Stoke-on-Trent in uh, England, and we're continuing our short series in the in a study of the Levitical system of offerings. We've looked at Leviticus in general and reasons to study Leviticus. We talked about the Levitical system of offerings in general ways, uh, some of the terminology of the offerings and some of the, the basic patterns of the ritual for animal offerings. And with this episode and the next several episodes, we're going to be tackling the specific offerings and basically working our way through the first five to six and a half chapters of Leviticus, uh, looking in more depth at each of the particular offerings. Uh, let me begin with uh, just setting some context. Uh, Leviticus, uh, has, you can look at Leviticus's structure in a, in a lot of different ways. Uh, one kind of simple way to take note of the organization is to take note of the places where Leviticus says, Yahweh spoke to Moses, or Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him, which is the way the book begins. But repeatedly, the book uh, tells us that Yahweh is speaking to Moses, and that line, Yahweh spoke to Moses, designates the beginning of a section. And if you look at the book of Leviticus as a whole, there are 39 of those divine speeches. 39 times it says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, or some variation of that. And so you have those, I think it's 37, you've got a, a collection of speeches. The central speech, the one that uh, is in the middle at the beginning, is at the beginning of Leviticus 16, so, and that's the Day of Atonement or Day of Coverings. That's the central speech in the book. And I think it's, I, I, mis, I misspoke, I don't think it's 39, I think it's 37, with 18 on each side, and the one in the middle, the 19th speech in the book, is the, the description of the rite of the uh, Day of Coverings. Uh, so that's a way of organizing the book or seeing the organization of the book, a simple way at least to begin to see the organization of the book. Uh, and that has some interesting effects because the, the, uh, that ordering, if you order it by speeches or organize it by speeches, it doesn't match the organization that we have by chapters. So in the opening chapters of Leviticus, we have a description of three different offerings. Um, the first chapter deals with what's traditionally called the whole burnt offering, what we'll be calling the ascension offerings, for reasons we'll explain. The second chapter in our Bibles deals with what's traditionally called the grain offering. In the next episode, we'll talk about the grain offering, and we'll call it the tribute offering, because that's a better translation of the Hebrew term. And then the third chapter deals with the peace offering, which we will call the peace offering, because that's a decent translation of the Hebrew word. So those are three different offerings. It's, it makes sense to divide those sections up into three separate chapters, which is what our Bibles do. 
But when you look at the book in terms of the organization by speech and the structure that's actually embedded in the book, then you'll notice that the first three chapters function as a single speech. It says, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him for the end of meeting saying, that's Leviticus 1.1. And we don't have another statement that the Lord is speaking to Moses until we get to 4.1. So that means in some way, chapters one through three, the ascension offering, the tribute offering of grain and the peace offering, in some sense, those are being taken as one unit of text rather than they're dealing with three separate subjects, but they're taken as one unit of text. Uh, and we'll, we'll come back and think a little bit about, I talk a little bit about why that might be the case. But one other, just one other point, just to get uh, more get more specific in the context. Leviticus 1, we'll be looking at in this episode, deals with the whole burnt offering or the ascension offering. Uh, and it's basically divided up into three sections. You have a couple of introductory verses that talk about the offerings in general. And then beginning in verse 3, it begins talking about the ascension offering specifically. And Leviticus 1, from verse 3 on to the end, is divided up into three sections. And the sections are telling the ritual, describing the ritual, prescribing the ritual, for three different types of animals that are going to be offered as ascension offerings. Uh, the first section from verses 3 through 9 describes the, uh, the, the uh, ritual for the offering of a herd animal, uh, which would be a male bovine, a, a, a bull or a calf. Um, the second section, verses 10 through 13, is uh, talking about uh, offerings, ascension offerings from the flock, ovines, uh, sheep or goats, which are specifically designated. And they, they too are supposed to be male. And then the last few verses from verse 14 through 17 uh, talk about the uh, ascension offering of birds. So you're moving from the largest of the sacrificial animals, the cattle, to uh, sheep and goats, and down when you get to the end of the chapter, to birds. And there's slight differences between the different, uh, the ways, both in the, in the rituals themselves, and then in the ways the rituals are described. So that at least gives us a, a, a kind of a sketch of some of the bigger picture of Leviticus than the bigger context of Leviticus 1, which fits into this three-chapter section, and then the different sections of the chapter itself. Our translations of Leviticus are not translated into English, but translated into weird. If they were translated into English, it would be a lot easier to understand. For instance, burnt offering instead of ascension, uh, to go up, is much clearer in English than burnt offering. To come near is much clearer than uh, offering. Uh, essentially, this, this ritual has to do with coming near to God to get a hug and uh, the desire of the Israelite to come near to God, to be embraced by him, to be restored to fellowship with him. That's what all this is about. And so this triplex of uh, offerings has to do with the, uh, the worshiper coming near uh, and bringing something that brings him near to God and bringing him near with his gifts. Uh, his gift is bread and wine and uh, uh, food for dinner. And that's, that's what these three offerings are. The, the, you know, the standard translations are less translations of the Hebrew terms that are used for the offerings than they are somehow a description of the offering. So 
right. the reason why the ascension offering is translated as whole burnt offering is not because that's what the Hebrew term means, because that's not what the Hebrew term means. Uh, it's because in this particular offering, the entire animal is burned. But it's not very descriptive because all, all of the animal offerings involve burning. Right. Uh, it's a whole burnt offering. That's more descriptive. But it, it, yeah, it doesn't really translate the word. Same with tribute offering, as we'll talk about in the next episode. Uh, it's translated as grain offering. That's not a translation of the, of the word minka. That's a, that's a description of the materials that are used for the offering. So what we're trying to do is actually translate the Hebrew terms that are used for the offerings uh, on the assumption, which I think proves true, that those terms actually unveil what the offering is about, as you were saying, the, the, the rationale and purpose of it. And when we're looking at the offerings, you've spoken in the past in the context of the Lord's Supper about the importance of not just looking at things with the zoom lens. When you look at the offerings, stepping back from the offerings and seeing the bigger picture, that this isn't just an animal that's killed that there's a whole ritual that's associated with it, dividing of different parts, different people doing different things, the movement of the animal to different, or the parts of the animal to different places, and a number of different parties involved in the actions associated with this. That's part of the meaning as well that we can often lose if we just have that um, zoom lens approach to understanding sacrifice, when in actual fact the sacrifices are quite highly developed and complex rituals. Yeah, the, I think that we've talked about this in previous episodes, but one of the, uh, one of the effects of, kind of a zoom lens approach to the, to the uh, rituals would be to see the act of slaughter as the, uh, the defining moment of the ritual. And for many Christians, Old Testament sacrifice is about substitutionary death and nothing else, and I think there's a uh, that's certainly an element, and it's uh, we don't want to we want to don't want to lose this. There's uh, a good bit of speculation of fondness these days for uh, nonviolent understanding of sacrifice that tries to eliminate the the uh, the moment of sacri- uh, of substitutionary death uh, of a penalty that tries to remove that from our understanding of sacrifice or atonement. I don't think you can do that. The animal dies. <laughs> the worshiper kills the animal. But that's not the only thing that's happening, as you're saying, Alistair. There's lots of other things that are happening. And to isolate that one event as if that were the sole meaning of the rite, uh, that's, a, that's, that's a distortion of the, of the meaning of the, of the event. I want to go back to something you were saying, Jim, that you were connecting the, the first several chapters of Leviticus and they, they have kind of a liturgical logic to them. Uh, you have the ascension offering, which is a way of coming near and ascending into God's presence. The grain offering or the tribute offering in chapter 2 is a, an offering about, uh, it's, it's a gift that you're bringing before the Lord. It's a product of your labor. And then the final offering is a, a meal, which is called a peace offering. And so there's a conclusion of covenant peace, as it were, and that sequence provides a kind of liturgical sequence. That's, that would be one way to see the logic of the speech, that first speech covering those three chapters. It's a connected sequence of events. Uh, and in, in actual fact, when, a, uh, when Israelites offered multiple offerings, that would be the sequence. The ascension offering uh, with its grain offering would come first, the ascension offering with its tribute, 
and then a peace offering would follow. Uh, and that's the way it's laid out in, in Leviticus. I, had a, I have another theory. I think I probably heard this from you, but remind, uh, tell me if I did. Probably. Um, it, it does seem like the, the first three chapters are also kind of a ritual redescription or ritual retelling of the Exodus. So there's an ascension. Uh, they're brought up from Egypt. Uh, they're brought up out of a realm of death. They come up with plunder. They come up with goods that they're going to offer to the Lord as tribute. And then they're gathered at Sinai in order to conclude or cut the covenant with the Lord. And the whole direction of the Exodus is toward that peace that they're going to enjoy at, at uh, Sinai and the sacrifices they're going to enjoy. So it seems like that would be another way of seeing the logic of those first three chapters is that it's a, a kind of ritual replication of the Exodus event. I probably got that from you, Jim. Well, I don't know if you did or not, Peter. Uh, but you might have. Uh, one thing I got from uh, 19th century writers who were much less fearful of this stuff than 20th century. And I've got it in the notes to Leviticus that we taught a couple of years ago here at Theopolis, the place where you go to find the truth about everything. And that is that uh, you come out of Egypt, you bring all these spoils, and you build the house. So the, the, the menka, or you have your ascension offering in Leviticus 1, in Leviticus chapter 2, you have the essential parts encapsulated of building a tabernacle on top of that. And then in chapter 3, you start the festivity. You have your Passover, so to speak, reenacted with a meal. So that does recapitulate the, the movement. And you, you already have that to some degree in the, just within chapter 1 in the Ascension Offering. Uh, Mary Douglas in her book Leviticus as Literature makes this point that there's a, um, I'm not going to remember the rhyme, but the, the rhyme, The House That Jack Built. Um, and uh, in this children's rhyme, uh, Jack um, builds one part of the house and then there's something on top of this, which is part of the house that Jack built. And there's the roof on top of the walls and top of the foundation of the house that Jack built. And then there's the chimney on top of the roof, on top of the uh, walls, on top of the foundation. And she sees a similar kind of thing going on in the way that the work of the priests at the altar is described. Verse 7, The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and rage wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Uh, that phrasing on the wood, on the fire that's on the altar, occurs a number of times in the chapter. So you have fire at the base, you put wood in, um, and then you arrange the pieces in a particular order on top of that. And uh, Douglas is seeing that as a kind of construction within the altar of a kind of uh, tabernacle model. Yeah. Um, the, the altar fire came from within the tabernacle, it's the Lord's own fire. Uh, and then you put wood in it, uh, it's part of tabernacle construction. And then you stick the animal in its parts into that, and you're putting the animal into this this altar, into the altar, but it's replicating the uh, the tabernacle system. And that's carried through, as we'll see next time, into uh, chapter two, as you said, with the with the way the tribute offering is described. As I mentioned in the previous 
previous discussion, it also recalls the covenant cutting in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. It's the same five species of animal, and they're also divided in a similar way, the birds not being divided. And it is a fundamental recapitulation of the covenant. In in this chapter, it recalls that very basic event at the beginning where the exodus is foretold, among other things. We probably have talked about this before, but that's one of, I think, two different episodes in the life of Abram, Abraham that are reflected in these rites. One, the other one would be uh, the offering of Isaac on Mount Moriah, which uh, I think comes out in specific ways in the, in the way that the the offerings are described, particularly the offering of a of a um, of cattle of a bovine. Uh, as Jim has pointed out for years, uh, the phrase translated in uh, in my New American Standard as young bull in Leviticus one five actually is son of the herd. So it picks up this idea of sonship uh, that is. Uh, the animal is represent a representation of a son, and you have this. You have the sequence. You have the sons of Israel bringing a son of the herd, and that gets transferred into the hands of the sons of Aaron the priests. And there's a there's an elevation, as it were, of the son. The, Isra- the son of Israel is passing on the son of the herd to the sons of the priests, so that the worshiper can enter almost priest-like through the animal through the services of the animal, you can enter like a priest into the presence of God. Uh, but that, that reference to sonship uh, brings to mind the, uh, the event on Mount Moriah where Abraham is about to offer Isaac. He's restrained. He offers a substitute instead. And uh, the rite puts each worshiper in Israel into that same position. Every worshiper is offering a son of the herd. Every worshiper is symbolically offering a son, which means offering a future. I think one, if, you want to, if you want to make this preachable, one way to preach this would be to say uh, what the uh, whole burn offering or the ascension offering depicts is Jesus' demand. You, we save our life only by losing it. We save our future only by being willing to give it into the Lord's hands. Uh, we save our children by giving them into the Lord's hands. Uh, that's what the worshiper is doing when he gives the son of the herd uh, over to the Lord, over to the priests, um, that's, he does that with the confidence and hope that the Lord is going to restore uh, that to him glorified, which is, again, that, that's, the, that's what happens to Isaac. Isaac uh, goes up to the mountain, is, goes through a kind of death and resurrection experience, uh, and Abraham receives him back from the dead, and the worshiper is giving up life in order to, to receive it back. I think that sonship reference also brings up Passover, another essential part of the uh, background of the sacrificial system. Every every offering, every animal offering is a reenactment of Passover. Um, I'm sure we talked about this in previous episodes, but uh, an animal is slaughtered, the blood is displayed as it was displayed on the doorpost at Passover, and this is a way of turning away the, the angel of death. I wanted, wanted to highlight, uh, highlight another detail uh, uh, at the beginning of the chapter this is before it begins talking specifically about the ascension offering but verse 2 says speak to the sons of Israel and say to them when any man of you brings a near bringing to Yahweh Um, that word man is Adam Um, it doesn't have to be Adam it could have been Ish another word for man in Hebrew 
It could have been nephesh, the word for soul. That's the, that's the word that's used in Leviticus 2 and elsewhere, if a nephesh, a soul, brings an offering. But when Leviticus 1 speaks about the offerings in general, it uses this general, this, this, uh, this term adam. Um, it means man, but it, uh, uh, given the fact that there are other, there are other linguistic options, there's got to be a reason for the choice of adam rather than one of the others. And I think that brings up the whole Edenic setting, which we have also talked about. The offerings are, this is the Lord's gracious provision for Israel to get back into his presence, for every Israelite Adam to come near and to, as it were, and re-enter the garden. Uh, the Adam can't come into the garden on his own, on his own power and his own righteousness. He has to come through a substitute. He comes through the animal. But it's the... Um, it's uh, that that use that usage I think brings up that Edenic setting. So you have these you have these layered um, the layered background. Um, as Alistair was saying, you have the the covenant cutting right in Genesis fifteen. You've got the uh, sacrifice of Isaac. You've got Passover in the deep background. You have Eden, and those those narratives, those previously revealed narratives give us the significance, tell us what these rites are about. If we try to read these rites just from Leviticus without that background, uh, they're very opaque. <laughs> uh, but when you start noticing details like sun or the word, use of the word Adam, then that brings up these earlier passages of Scripture. And those narratives provide the framework for understanding what's going on in the ritual. Along those lines, um, I have it in my mind from the past that uh, the... Uh the flock offering is not a son. It's just a member. And uh, the, uh, the words used are more feminine pronouns. Hmm. Uh, and, and you've got, as you know, uh, in the system, you've got sons and you've got wives. And you've got this you know, back and forth between... Uh, Israel being a son, Israel being a bride. Uh, obviously, you might offer your son. You don't have any rituals where you offer your wife. <laughs> uh, and so there are differences of language. But and part of the, we've pointed out in, a, in an essay on the, the Holborn offering and the Ascension offering, that uh, the way that the herd animal and the flock animal are described and the relation to the group is different. So the son, the fact that the son, sorry, the, the offering from the herd is a son, puts that offering in a particular, uh, symbolizing a particular kind of a political or social relation to the group. You have the herd and then you have the son that's kind of the, the leader who emerges from the herd or is over the herd. Yeah. When you have a flock, it doesn't use that sonship language and it doesn't use that language of kind of ascent or elevation. Um, and there's more of the sense that the flock animal, as you said, is representing more the bridal community rather than the leader. So you have these, even though they're, uh, the rituals are very similar, the way that they're described diverges, and that highlights different uh, aspects or facets of the symbolism of the Ascension offering. One of the things I noticed in, I've been working through these chapters recently in Sunday school, and I noticed in uh, the, uh, uh, the opening uh, of the uh, discussion of the ascension offering, the interesting shift in the the grammatical number 
uh, in the verbs and in the pronoun suffixes. So it starts out with an Adam, singular, yeah. bringing an offering. But then in, even in verse 2, an Adam brings his offering. When any Adam brings their offering, you, plural, shall bring y'all's offering, that's plural too, from the herd or from the flock. And then there are several other places in the course of the chapter where the verbs are plural or the pronouns are plural, as if the animal was the common property of Israel. Even though it's an individual, Adam, who's making the offering, the verbs and some of the pronoun suffixes make it sound like he's doing it on behalf of the whole community. He's acting as a representative uh, in every offering, uh, which I think do, does make sense, especially I think one way to, to think about it is um, if you think about, among other things, what the offerings are doing is repairing uh, an individual's relationship with God. It's, it's for the sake of covering or atonement. He does this to, so that he can be acceptable to God. Um, and that's restoring him to God's favor. But insofar as his sin or wrong has disrupted the fabric of Israel, uh, he's also doing it for the sake of a whole Israel. He's not just trying to restore his own wholeness and his own, his own relationship to God. He's trying to restore wholeness to the community. Uh, so every offering has that kind of, that kind of uh, individual and communal dimension that uh, I think is being reflected in the way the, uh, the grammar works in these opening verses. And you can think about it in, in uh, Christian terms. We, we confess our sins to God so that we can be restored to his favor. Uh, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we also confess our sins in order to repair the torn and frayed fabric of, uh, of the church. We want the community to be put back together. And so there's both that vertical and horizontal dimension that's being brought out here. Maybe underlining something that we've been discussing to this point, it's worth bearing in mind just how close the analogies are between human beings and animals in these rights that the same things for instance that would disqualify priests from serving in the temple are the things that would disqualify animals from being used as sacrifices um the fact that it's a, a an unblemished male that's the same sort of requirement that we have for the priest serving in the temple and those sorts of analogies help us to understand just how closely these two things are associated with each other we see other sorts of associations with this dedication of the firstborn child, with um, things like cutting the corners of your beard and the corners of your field, all these sorts of analogies between human beings and the natural or, nanim or animal order help us to see part of what is taking place in this. Um, not least, some of the things that you've mentioned about the relationship between the um, male offering and the cattle and the and one taken from the flock those sorts of differences are analogous to human to human differences and those differences are very clearly played out within the law more generally where you will have laws applying to human beings and laws applying to animals and sacrificial animals that are very closely paralleled with each other that's really helpful for i want to point out a couple of things within chapter one that that uh uh, kind of support that and confirm that. One is the the way that um, the uh, condition of the animal is described. You pointed out uh, parallels between the physical condition of priests and the physical condition of animals. 
in the case of both the herd animal and the flock animal, it has to be a male, and it has to be a male without defect. You find out much later in Leviticus that the parallel that you described, uh, that there's a, there's a similarity between the defects that would disqualify a priest from serving at the altar and the defects or blemishes that would disqualify an animal from going into the altar. So that parallel is explicit in chapters 21 and 22. At this point, it's not. And uh, almost invariably, it may be without, uh, without, without uh, any variation. The word that's used for um, without defect here is used for moral perfection in the earlier part of the Bible. So um, I'm, I'm borrowing an argument from Lee Travaskis, an Australian scholar who's uh, written a book on holiness and purity in Leviticus. Uh, can't remember the full title. But he argues that the, the term itself has moral connotations. It's used in this ritual context without explanation at this point. And that kind of raises the question for the original hearers or readers of Leviticus. They wonder, well, what, what would a blemished animal be? What does that mean? If you think blemish means a moral blemish, then a morally upright animal, what, what might that mean? So just by the vagueness of the term, at this point in Leviticus, um, the symbolic possibilities of the word are being are being evoked, and that connection that you were describing, Alistair, is being being brought out. And then later on, you find the specifics of the ritual requirements. That's um, that's later on, but until you get there, you have this terminology without blemish repeatedly, and it always has this kind of vagueness to it that uh, Travaska suggests is deliberately there in order to evoke the symbolic interpretation. So uh, that's all, a part of that is to say, this is again Travascus' argument, that the, the symbolic or moral interpretations of the, of the uh, animal uh, offerings uh, are not imposed from the outside by moralistic interpreters, but they're already embedded within the way that the texts are written. Those, those dimensions are being encouraged by the, by the very open-endedness of the, of the text. That's good. That is good. It's a good book. Re, uh, Lee Travaskis, L-E-I-G-H Travaskis. If you can find it, it's, uh, it's well worth taking a look at. Uh, the other thing I was going to say to, to uh, highlight this, highlight your point, Alistair, is at the end of the chapter, where we get to offerings of birds, um, uh, we're not told why you would offer different kinds of animals at this point. Why, why would you offer turtle dove instead of a son of the herd? Uh, as we get to later on in um, Leviticus, uh, we find that birds are pretty frequently used in cases where a person can't afford a larger animal. If a woman, ha a woman has a child, she has to go through a period of purification. At the end of that period of pur purification, she has to go through a cleansing ritual, which involves an offering. Um, the offering typically requires a, a lamb, but if she cannot afford it, then she can offer a bird. Uh, that's true in some other cases with the sin offering. There's a, there are provisions made for poor for the poor so that they can participate in they can participate in the worship of the tabernacle. The worship of the tabernacle is not a liturgical club for the rich. Uh, God has made provisions so that all of Israel can can participate, and that suggests I think that the uh, birds not only they're not an arbitrary choice. Something about birds makes them appropriate symbols of the poor, appropriate symbols of these marginal members of the community.
And I, I, I think then there's an, another case where you have the symbolism of a particular kind of animal uh, linking up with the use of that animal in, a, in, the, in the liturgy of, uh, of Leviticus. In the past, you've commented on the way that the worship that we see exemplified in a place like this is in many respects far more, um, for want of a better word, individualistic than the worship that we have in the New Covenant, where we gather together and there is a far more collective act of offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice. There are, however, as you've already mentioned, ways in which each sacrifice is one that implicates the wider body of the people. Um, the way that you have the different elements of the society of Israel, each represented by different animals, and the whole chapter, within the whole chapter, what you're seeing is the offering up of the whole nation through these separate sacrifices. How can we think more carefully about the relationship between the collective aspect of this and what it would mean for just an individual person to offer and maybe how that relates to our worship in the new covenant. Well, I think one aspect of it is to recognize that the, the offerings that are going on at the sanctuaries are not merely the ones that uh, individual Israelites bring, but there are regular offerings that are performed by the priests. There's a morning and evening ascension offering there's extra ascension offerings morning and evening on the Sabbath day. Uh, Numbers 28 and 29 lay out the schedule for the required offerings. And those, I think, are they're being done by the priests, but they're being done by the priests on behalf of the whole people. And so it, I think that, that would be one, one dimension of the answer. You have this uh, communal dimension, and that's the foundation of all the daily sacrifices that individuals might bring. It's the priest's morning ascension offering that's burning on the altar when an individual comes into the, you know, when, when the tabernacle opens for the day and the first individual comes in to offer his offering, there's already the priestly offering. So the individual offerings are added to that. The other, I think practically speaking, my guess is that most, for most Israelites, the offerings that they would bring would be in connection with feasts. We know that men were required to appear before the Lord three times a year at particular feasts. How often did they go to the tabernacle other than that, or, uh, or later to the temple? My guess is that for many Israelites, those would be the times that they would come. And those are always festive occasions. Those, are always, those always involve large crowds and many sacrifices and peace offerings, which means lots of food for the people and uh, communal events. So in the experience of the, of the lay Israelite, I think the, predominantly their experience of the tabernacle would be at those... Uh, high feasts. Would you agree with that, Jim, that that would be the normal setting for most Israelites? Why, yes, Peter. <laughs> I think these sacrifices are expensive. I think the ordinary Israelite probably couldn't afford to be involved in them except with birds. Or uh, the purification offering uh, goes down even farther to handfuls of flour but let's just say birds, that's something most people could probably afford. You'd have to go to, I mean, you can't, um, most people can't catch a bird. So you've got bird catchers who sell birds in the courtyard of the tabernacle temple. And Jesus is upset that they are moving 
into the temple grounds itself to sell these things. And he says, the temple itself should be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of merchandise. You're selling, you're doing something that's necessary, selling these birds actually in the uh, worship area itself instead of out in the square. In the square is where you should do it. Now I've gotten off of uh, But you're going to have people who specialize in catching birds and selling them to the poor, and that's who can do it. But they have friends. You have wealthy people. You have uh, employers who want to include their employees in the sheep, the goats that they offer at the feast and have party. And so, yeah, you're right. Feasts are the cool time when you look forward to having a little bit of beef or lamb or goat. I think we made Jim hungry. He's going off into reverie, thinking about dinner. Um, one other thought I was I was having, Alistair, is the how, how do how do we translate this into kind of into new covenant terms? And one way to do it, that I think it's certainly worth contemplating, is to think about what relation there might be between daily prayer, and I mean I don't mean daily personal prayer, but daily prayer as a an event of the church, and the Lord's Day worship. So the the pattern that you have in Leviticus is the priests having regular moments of worship at certain times of day. Individual worshipers could come in and participate in the daily worship in certain ways, but it'd be mainly the priests that were doing it in, 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 uh, in Israel. And then at the great feast, you would have the, the, the entire people that would gather, at least the men were required. And uh, from the examples we have, it seems that men usually brought their families with them. Yeah. So if you translate that into the New Covenant, then a cycle of daily worship that people can uh, pop into. I mean, this, uh, this is a, in, some, in some church traditions, this has been a common practice, faded out in the last few centuries, it seems. But um, a morning and evening prayer daily that uh, you uh, might come to if you can, but it would be there uh, regardless of whether somebody, uh, whether you have a congregation or not. There is a minister who's leading a prayer service, and he might have a handful of people, he might have several dozen people on for matins or vespers, but it would be going on every day. And then on the Lord's Day, the whole people gathers for worship. I mean, this was this is the pattern that you have in uh, in some of the Cambridge uh, Cambridge uh, chapels, college chapels, for example. I, I think it's the case that uh, King's College Chapel has a daily vesper service, uh, uh, evensong. It may be just a few days a week, but... Uh, well, I know a Presbyterian minister who does a daily morning and evening worship. Often, he's just reading the service him for himself alone, but people do drop in right. on their way to work. Right. So I think that would be one, one way to see the pattern working out, that you have... Uh, I, I think I, I would also say that there's a... Certainly, you could apply the pattern you're lo we're looking at Leviticus to a pattern of personal daily prayer individual prayer, and then corporate. And those two things are mutually reinforcing. So I think that you could probably apply it at, at, uh, at various levels. Well, if you want something grand... Yeah, give us a grand closing, Jim. Well, I think we've all but made the point that 
these three forms of coming near correspond to the Christian worship service. And so we we come near and we ascend into God's presence. We bring our offering. That's the next thing we do. It doesn't happen at some other place in the worship service. It happens right before the Eucharistic meal. And then we have um, the meal with Christ. And so there is some instruction for Christian worship here in terms of a pattern. That's the pattern the early church instinctively followed. Mm-hmm. Um, we will find in chapters 4 and 5 that there are certain confessional sacrifices that come first. So in Christian worship, there's a confession of sin that comes before any of this. There, ta-da, that's the grand conclusion. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.